Welcome back. Actually, you've been here the whole time. It's me that is back. And uh, uh, it is good to be here with you again. I really love going down and teaching um, the confirmation class. Uh, it is just, uh, I don't know. I, I get a kick out of the kids and, you know, tormenting them. I mean, teaching them. And uh, <laughs> it, they're just, they're, they're such neat kids. And it's fun to watch them grow and, and all of that. Um, but I always, uh, I always look forward to coming back to this and uh, and being with the adults. It's a different, it's a different conversation. It's a different motivation. Um, I don't know if you uh, ever think back to when you went to confirmation and were like, "Mom, Dad, please take me. I can't wait to get there." <laughs> yeah, that's changed. They, they're like, "Oh, my parents make me be here," you know. But you, you are here of your own free choice. And, uh, it, you know, so that means you want to be here, and that is, uh, that is exciting and fun. And um, I will hopefully help you to continue to grow in your knowledge of the Word, but also bringing forth some of those things that are going to help you to grow in faith as well uh, through the book of Romans. And uh, we'll see. Maybe, maybe we'll finish it this year. I don't make any promises, though. <laughs> um, let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father. We thank and praise you that we can be here uh, today, and we ask, Lord, that you would bless this time that we have in your word. We pray that you would bless us as we consider this, uh, this incredible letter uh, written by St. Paul uh, in order to really communicate to us uh, some very important things about our faith. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit would open your word to us, that we would hear it, that we would believe it, and that we would be strengthened by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I haven't really done anything like this with you before, but uh, if you t were to take a look at the, the page there, um, well, actually, I, I need to go back a half a step. Uh, the last time I taught in here, we did chapter 9, and I, when I was talking about the very end of chapter 9, I talked about this actually probably belongs to chapter 10. Now, I don't actually expect you to remember that because that was November. Um, but let me walk through that with you again. Remember that at multiple points in the book, Paul asks this question, what shall we say then? And those tend to be kind of divisions in the book where he moves from, you know, teaching on one topic into another topic. And so right there in chapter 9, verse 30, he says, what shall we say then? And he's, he's moving the book forward with that question, moving the letter forward. And he's going to hit on some, some key ideas as you go through those, those next verses, all the way through verse 15. And I printed um, chapter 9, verse 30, which I think ought to be chapter 10, verse 1. Um, not that that's a big deal. It's all arbitrary, the numbers there. Um, but uh, um, yeah, remember that you know, this was written as a letter. The chapters, I, if I remember right, were applied in like the 1100s, the, the, as we use it now, and the verses as we use them now, somewhere in uh, the early 1400s. So some of this is relatively new by the time you get to the Reformation. 
And actually, if you read the documents from that time period, sometimes they'll mention chapters, but more often than not, they just mention the book. And they definitely don't mention a verse number um, for the most part, because it's just not there at that time. People really aren't using it the way that we use it. Um, so I'd like for you to go through uh, chapter 9, verse 30, and all the way through 10, 15, and it's printed there on the page for you. And uh, I want you to circle. It doesn't have to be a perfect circle. It could be an oval. It could be kind of a rounded blob. I don't care. Um, uh, every time you see the word righteousness. After you do that, I'd like for you to go back through that and underline every time the word faith or believe is there because those are roughly the same word in Greek. And then I would like for you to draw a box around the word law every time that it shows up in the text. All right, I paused the recording there because that took you a good solid about 10 minutes to, uh, to go through that. Um, and I really do want to compliment you because if I had done that with my confirmands, we'd still be doing this because they would be like, if we keep doing this, he won't talk and I won't have to take notes. And, um, uh, but uh, uh, those words showed up a lot, right? Um, so, having read that through, having seen the way that those words keep popping up through this, how would you summarize the main theme of this part of Romans? Saved by righteousness. Okay. By grace, by faith. But whose righteousness? Uh, Jesus' righteousness. Jesus' righteousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're, it's received by faith, right, Jane? Yeah, so you've got this, this righteousness of God that's in here and uh, this receptiveness by faith and all of these themes, which, does this sound familiar? Yeah, this is kind of the main theme of the whole book. Um, so he, he went on a little bit of excursus and now he's coming back to it as he is going to talk about who Israel is, what it means to be Israel, um, and what it is to have a right relationship with God in this context of a Jew-Gentile congregation. Yeah, Ed. Did you choose the box for law to represent the stumbling block that you I did about? not. I just had to come up with shapes that I knew you could draw. I actually did it with colors in my Bible. I was like, oh, they're not going to have colors. <laughs> um, Although maybe next time I'll bring colored pencils for everybody. Um, just kidding. Um, I think that this worked. But no, I didn't. I should have thought of that, though. That's good. <laughs> so um, how are the righteousness uh, that comes by faith and the righteousness of the law different? The Holy Spirit will give you the faith and the belief. Okay, the Holy Spirit gives us faith and belief. Okay, yeah. Cindy? One is what we do and one is what God did. Okay, and which one is which? The law is what we do. Right. 
And at the end of the day, is the righteousness that comes by the law achievable? No. It is not. Can I ask a question about the law? Please. In my reading the Bible in 18 months, yeah. first of all, I got to Exodus 20 for one and I can fall asleep. Fair enough. I tried to listen to it, I tried reading yeah. it. No, it's tough. Okay. So all these laws, is that the addition to the Ten Commandments? They were given to Moses on the mountain. Yeah, it, it sure sounds like they're on the tablet, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, what, what you have there is, um, I think in some ways, they're commentary on the Ten Commandments. You know, a lot of them, you can tie them back to the commandments. And so they're, they're like illustrations of what does this mean? What does this look like? So you think Moses I do not. Yeah, it says that God wrote those down. Okay, so Moses took his little tablet or his stone tablet with him and... Yeah. Okay. Um, actually, it may be that God you know, had him or gave him the tablets the first time, but he was told to bring tablets with him the second time. Okay. You know, so... Uh, yeah, but uh, it was written in God's handwriting, and that's what he takes and he smashes when he comes down when they're uh, worshiping at the golden calf. It just seems like there's so many and they're so complicated. And... Wait, wait till you get to Leviticus. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, 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 I haven't written uh, my email for this week, but the, there will be a line in there along the lines of Leviticus is where um, yearly Bible reading plans goes to die. Because so many people, they get to that, and it's just like, this is, un what? You know, uh, there's a lot of blood, a lot of sacrifices, a lot of, you know, these are the rules. It's called Leviticus. You know, this is a spoiler for those of you who are going to get the email later. But um, the Levites, you know, the descendants of Jacob's son, Levi, got the priesthood. So Moses, Aaron, his sons, they're all Levites. Um, they are responsible for the, uh, the tabernacle and the worship in the tabernacle, which means they are responsible for this, the, these sacrifices. And so it's called Leviticus because these are the rules that would control the, the worship or specifically the sacrifices in that book. Yeah? Isn't it in the Gospels, Jesus make it pretty clear that the law is also incomplete, that even if you follow all yeah, I, I think that what Jesus is actually doing is he's bringing it, we, we, he's looking at how we look at the law, and we tend to look at it like here, uh, and then he says, but it actually is, this is what it takes, this way up higher level yeah. to, to actually complete the law. You know, so um, like the murder one, this is my favorite because he kind of goes through some steps with it. Um, and and uh, he says, you know, the law says, you know, do not murder. And everybody's like, sweet, I haven't killed anybody. Good on me, right? And, uh, and then he uh, uh, goes on and uh, he starts talking about how if you get angry, how if you call your brother names, you know, and it's just, he, he's just constantly showing that, you know, there, there is like this, this baseline that's in the words, you know, do not murder. But it's actually saying so much more. 
and a lot of that commentary that's around it in Exodus is getting at some of that. So. I don't know how anybody could actually do all of it. That's the point. Nobody can actually do all of it. My former pastor said that that they believe that if for one day everybody could keep all the laws, that the Messiah would come. Good luck with that. That's why they believe he's never come. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've heard that before too, um, but it, it's never going to happen. There's only one that kept the law, and you know, he is the Word made flesh. So, all right. Anything else in Leviticus before we move back to Romans? It is. Remember, it is one book. You know, you, you might have, um, what is it, 60, uh, 63 books in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, and 27 in the New, but it's one continuity. It's all the story of Jesus the whole way through, Genesis all the way to Revelation. You know, so, you know, we're going to do a lot of hopping around. In, like the book is really the chapter. Kind of. You know, it's another part of that story being unfolded and being revealed for us. And in different genres, right? Um, because some of it is very much historical. Reading through Genesis was very easy. And the first part of Exodus is too, because it's a narrative. It's telling the story of the people. It's telling the story of God calling Abraham and choosing this particular people to be the one to bring the Messiah into the world. You know, just kind of building on that. And then you get into this legislative stuff, this very highly descriptive stuff, the stuff of the tabernacle. I, yeah, no, it's mind-numbing to read that because the detail is just so... And, and then he does it again afterwards, right? In order to say, we did it all, the way that he said, do it. Um, you've got poetry in there. You've got this weird prophetic kind of apocalyptic stuff that's in there. Um, you've got biographies. You know, so it's one book, but you have different genres that are showing up throughout of it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a really, even if you weren't a Christian, even if you weren't Jewish, um, this document that's in front of us is incredibly important for the foundation of civilization, and not just ours. It, you know, it, it has impacted even others. So, um, when you look at that sheet and you, you see where I've printed um, uh, the, the text for today, you'll notice that some parts are in bold and some parts are just regular font. Um, those parts that are in bold are references to the Old Testament. I think that's important as we're reading through Romans. You know, he is constantly going back to the scriptures constantly building on the foundation of the prophets who spoke of Jesus even before he came. Um, so take a look at verses, uh, chapter 9, verse 32 through 33, uh, as they, they speak of this stumbling stone and a rock of offense. What, what is that? What's so offensive about what Paul is saying here? 
life, money, having to uh, pay for your house and food and take care of your kids, uh, everything gets in the way that would distract you. Okay, those are things that can be stumbling blocks in our lives, but I don't think that's what he's talking about here, is it? But Israel, pursuing the, the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it's written, look, I put a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over. And the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. So what, what is that rock? What is that stumbling stone that God puts in front of people that they're going to trip over? What's it? Christ. Christ, yes. And what did you say? I said the stumbling stone is the wall. It's connected to that. Yeah. It's this, Christ. it's this, I, yes. And ultimately that God does not work through a reliance on the law but that he's going to give the gift to be received by by faith. And that is offensive to the human nature so often. Because we feel that we should be able to achieve it, we should be able to, to do what's necessary on our own means. And if you don't believe me that this is in us, find yourself in a kind of a tough spot sometime and receive charity from people. Doesn't that, I mean, on the one hand, you know, when you pull back, you're like, oh, thank God, right? But on the other hand, so many times I've talked with people, they feel ashamed that they needed help. Um, even in my own life, there have been times where we were struggling very mightily uh, financially and people came alongside and helped us. And we were just so embarrassed, which in retrospect, isn't that dumb? You know, to receive love from somebody and be embarrassed that they helped you. And I think that, you know, for a lot of us, we're, we're, we, we want to be able to take care of ourselves, to be self-sufficient in every way, and that connects back to our relationship with God. And I'm open to the idea that this is harder for us as Westerners, particularly as people who grew up in the United States, because we do have this very high value on individualism and on self-sufficiency that maybe other cultures don't have. Um, but I think that this is something that if you scratch the surface hard enough, you're going to find this in, in people everywhere. That they want to be good enough on their own at some level. And what God is saying is you're not. And so you have to receive this by faith. Yeah, Ed. Yes. It's not fair. I did everything right. Yes. And I'm still, I'm still not there. That I should be able to get there, and this murderer should, should, should suffer forever. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, karma is very much a very natural human belief. Yeah. You know, and uh, the the problem is that it doesn't match with how God works. Now. There are elements of that that you can observe in the world, that kind of what comes around goes around, but not always. And at the center of our faith is that, thanks be to God, what comes around, what we do, 
does not come back to us, but finds its ending point at the cross, you know, and we get to live in forgiveness. Um, I mentioned this professor that I had when I was at the seminary. His name was Norman Nagel. Uh, Nagel was at Valparaiso before he was at the seminary, and uh, um, he's an Australian guy. He's kind of quirky. Um, he usually began his lectures for class about the moment that he entered into the building, and so it would be started like in the hallway, and we'd hear him coming down the hallway. He's already talking through his lecture. It was a little bit maddening, um, but he, he was brilliant, and that's probably part of the problem. <laughs> and uh, he had this great line that he liked to, uh, to just really press into us, and he would tell us, always look at who's doing the verbs. Always look at who's doing the verbs. Always look at who is the one that's actually doing the action. And so you see this kind of a dichotomy that's going on here in Romans where the people, the Israelites in particular, he's talking about here, they want to be the ones doing the action. But who's doing the real action? God is. You know, it, 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 we, we get into trouble with this all the time. So as Lutherans, we baptize babies, right? And in other denominations, they'll tell you that baptism is something that you do to show your commitment to God. We're like, no, no, baptism is done to you. It's not something that you choose, per se. Uh, in fact, Jesus kind of commanded it. You know, it, um, I once was dealing with a gentleman. Um, he did not want to be baptized. He didn't understand why he had to be baptized. Uh, and I said, well, what if Jesus says you have to be baptized? He just kind of pauses for a second. He's like, did he? He's <laughs> like, yes. He's like, oh, well, then I guess I'll be baptized. <laughs> yeah, Ed. There's, there's a character, sort of a character, I think, in uh, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Okay. It's a character called the Electric Monk. Oh. It was a robot. Okay. Who can be programmed to believe any arbitrary concept very intently, thus relieving the people around him of having to do that work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just thought it's an interesting idea. I don't know about the transferability of faith. Right. You know, but it brings me back to the work of believing. Yeah. It's, it's a tricky thing. It is. accomplished by, by, by will the whole concept chases its tail, you know. If you yeah. believe that it's easy to believe, if you don't believe, then how do you get there? And the whole, yeah. Yeah, and so we are always wanting, wanting evidence and proof and, you know, that this logic's out to work out so that this makes sense. And God doesn't necessarily give us that. And this is one of the things that I really love about um, the small catechism when it talks about the third article of the creed, talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, when you read through, you know, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, life everlasting. And then as Luther does, when he was writing the catechism, he asks, what is this? What does this mean? And he starts this explanation saying, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. 
that this isn't something that I can achieve in and of myself. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. He's enlightened me with his gifts. You know, he sanctified and kept me in the one Christian church. So all of this, you know, as, as I said earlier in Romans, you know, that this is about grace from first to last. It's grace to grace. That, that's really what we're resting on, is that God is our Savior from first to last. So when people will talk about having had a conversion experience, you know, and they'll, they'll say, I chose Jesus. And I really want to be careful with people because that is how they experience that, yeah. right? You know, so anecdotally, that's what happened to them. I'm not poo-pooing that. But theologically, there's something else that happened. God chose them. God worked in their lives. The Holy Spirit brought this faith into them so that they could believe and receive these gifts. Now, do you experience that as I chose Jesus? Quite possibly. But you also have this element of, wait, the Bible says I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, and how do dead people do anything? They have to be made alive. Well, who does that? Well, dead people don't make themselves alive. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to make us alive in Christ. And so there is kind of this this circular feeling to the whole thing, or maybe a total dependence in the whole thing. But does that mean that if the Holy Spirit doesn't choose you, you're just out of luck? Well, I think that there's another message that's in the scriptures that says that God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We know that Jesus died to pay for the sins of all people, not just those who believe in him, right? right? And I think that we could say, rightly, that God chooses humanity to be the object of salvation. However, I also think that it's possible for us in our madness to reject the gift. You know, um, you know the, the, the very first sin, as we often look at that, is connected to this idea of being like God or even being God. And so then God comes and says, you're not. And we're offended by that idea. And then we don't want him to give us his gift. It's, 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 it's a real mess that the human condition can be. Um, there's, a, there's a document that Luther wrote. It probably needs closer attention than it gets. Um, but it's called The Bondage of the Will. And uh, the bondage of the will, there were only a couple of documents that Luther wanted people to, to keep that he wrote. Um, he, he wished that they would just burn the rest of them. And the bondage of the will was one of them. And it was responding to a a guy by the name of Erasmus of Rotterdam. Uh, And Erasmus was a humanist. And he was very keen on this idea that we have this power to believe and to do the things that God calls us to do. And Luther came at it, you know, so kind of this free will idea. And we love free will here in the United States. You know, we, we are very much steeped in this, this type of an idea that we are free, we choose, we do. Luther responds with this document. He, he literally calls it the bondage of the will. And he comes with this idea that the will is bound. 
It's bound in sin. And that's where it's always going to go naturally. So yeah, you are free to choose, but what you're going to choose is sin. Apart from God doing his work in us. So I can't, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus. I can't do the right things by my own reason or strength. I need the Holy Spirit to make me alive. And he's even the, like the battery that keeps me going to do the right things in the faith. And at the end of the day, any good works that we do, they're going to be accepted, not because, you know, look at me, I did them good, but because we live in Christ's forgiveness. Yeah. There's a scene, there's a, there's a movie called As Good As It Gets, Jack Nicholson. Yes. There's a scene in that. Is uh, Helen Hunt in that yes. too? Yes, yes, I was thinking. Yes, scene for a compliment. Say it again? Yes, yes. He's obsessive, compulsive, he's got all sorts of neuroses and all this. And she says, I want you to give, I've never heard you give anyone a compliment. He's yeah, because he's an absolute jerk. He's yeah. And she says, but he loves her. Yeah. And she says, I want a real compliment. And he thinks for a while. And he says, since I met you, I've been taking my, my psych meds. And she says, well, what's that got to do with me? And he says, and he's really happy with this compliment. Don't you see? You make me want to be a better person. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I was just thinking about that scene. Because, okay, now we've been made alive by Christ. The Holy Spirit's at work in us. We're, we're still going to be flawed and we're still going to be drawn to sin. But all of a sudden, the, you know, the, the neuroses, the, 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 the disease is still clinging, just like it was clinging to Nicholson, right? Yeah. To his character. Oh, yeah. And yet, all of a sudden, because of the Spirit at work in us, there is this desire to be a better person. You know, a, a godly person. Well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the Spirit working in us, and thanks be to God for that. And then we're like, let's do it. And then we're like, oh, I'm still falling short. I'm still a cranky old man sitting at the table, and the woman that I love still has to say to me, give me a compliment. Yeah. Right? Because he's still messed up, yeah. even though he's trying. I, 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 that's beautiful. Well, I think the other part of that is the way his really having a hard time coming up with a compliment. Yeah. And then when he gets it, he's just, he's just uplifted. I got it. It's a yeah. compliment and it's yeah. true. And, you know, and then he's sort of crestfallen when she doesn't understand it. But then yeah. once he explains it, then it all yeah. sort of works out. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a great image. Yeah. For, for, kind of that sinful condition, God doing his work in us, changing us. You know, and, you know, God is love, and, you know, so it kind of connects to the story. And I think there's, there's also a, just a general analogy, sort of, with psychics. Yeah. Because it's typical. Ask the public health nurse. Oh, yeah. Sometimes. And it's not just psych meds, it's all meds. On your meds. Yeah. You feel good about being on your meds. But when you're off then you feel like, no, I don't want those. Yeah. And you, you get into, well, which, which me is the real me? What would I work for if I work myself? Yeah. It's tricky stuff.
Yeah, um, I'm asthmatic, you know, so I take asthma medicine every day and it does a great job of maintaining that and I feel good. So do you know what I forget to do when I feel good? <laughs> take my medicine, it's great. <laughs> People are a mess. All right, the, the stuff that we're talking about here, it's a very important insight for the sinful heart. Who's doing the verb? Who's doing the work? Who is the subject and who is the object? You know, God is the subject of the verb. We are the object of it. He's the one who's doing the work on us. <clears throat> you know, and in justification and righteousness, we are always the, the object. Yeah. God is the subject. We are the object. He's giving us justification. He is working righteousness in us. So um, I've, I've mentioned a couple of old documents already, um, but uh, to kind of go back to this, uh, the Augsburg Confession is really, we, we get really worked up about um, the nailing of the 95 Theses you know, at, at the end of October, right? Uh, you know, and we have Reformation Day. Um, but uh, in, in June of uh, 1520, I think, um, the, uh, the quote-unquote Lutherans, they weren't necessarily called that then at the time, or if they were, it was disparagingly, were called to come before the emperor and to present their confession. You know, this is what we believe. And so uh, one of those prof professors that was involved in the Wittenberg movement uh, was a guy by the name of Philip Melanchthon. Um, he went because Luther couldn't go because he was under uh, penalty of death. Uh, so probably bad to show up in front of the emperor. Um, and, uh, and so Melanchthon goes and he presents this document and we use it to this day um, because we say that this is a true and right exposition of God's word. When I was installed here, I had to swear that this would guide my teaching. Um, and in Article 4, which is all about justification, he writes this. In fact, this is all of Article 4 from the Augsburg Confession. Our churches teach that people cannot be justified before God by their own strength, merits, or works. People are freely justified for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they are received into favor and that their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. By his death, Christ made satisfaction for our sins. God counts this faith for righteousness in his sight. And notice it says Romans 3 and 4. There are no verses on there because that was not familiar to them at the time. Um, so it's, it's summarizing that this is something that we, we receive. Now, they wrote this whole document and they gave it to the, uh, the emperor the emperor gave it to the representatives of the, uh, the Catholic Church at the time, and they provided a document, document called the Confutation. In other words, they were going to refute all kinds of stuff you know, because we're just not going to agree on anything. And, uh, and so they were trying to poke holes in everything, and they went after this. You know, they very much were teaching at the time that there is something that you must do to get this forgiveness and salvation. And so Philip Melanchthon, you know, after he received, uh, they wouldn't even give the reformers a copy of it. They took notes while it was being read. And uh, um, 
And so he went back to those notes and he wrote an apology. Now, when, when we hear the word apology, we tend to think, you know, I'm sorry. This apology is, you're wrong. Um, it's actually, it means a defense. Um, it's from the Greek word apologia, which means to defend. Um, and, and so a defense of the Augsburg Confession. So Article 4, right above that, that's the whole thing. He writes 20 pages on this one idea. It's more than anything else that he writes about in the apology to the Augsburg Confession because he knows that this is the heart of the matter. And so in, in the defense, he writes this. They, that would be the, the, the Roman Catholic theologians, condemn us for teaching that people obtain forgiveness of sins not because of their own merits, but freely for Christ's sake through faith in Christ. He goes through that whole time. He's like, no, look, over and over and over again. That's exactly what Romans is doing. And you can see it in the rest of the Bible. Once that becomes the principle, once you see that as, as a lens, you, you start seeing it all over the place. Yeah? In this Article 4, doesn't this, isn't this like an element of what we need to do? Because he says, when they believe, they are received into favor. Okay. That sounds like something that I have to believe. But how do you get belief? the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But, I mean, that's, isn't that a lot of, like, uh, non-denominational churches and things that they have this belief that you have to choose it? Yes. Not that you were chosen. Correct. So, I mean, that does sound like, like, so let's say the Holy Spirit, I guess you can't fight the Holy Spirit. That's true. So, Yeah. I, I think we can reject faith. Yeah. So it does mean that there's something we do. Yeah, it's just not good. But you know what I'm saying? That there is an element of us choosing, it seems. It does seem that way. I, I see it this way. If you're given a gift, right, you what do you do with that gift? You have a gift. Yeah. You're not, you're not giving me. You're not, you're not taking me. You're not giving me. Are any of you familiar with the uh, um, TV show Monk? Yes. yes. Tony Shalhoub plays this. Yes. Neurotic guy. You know, he's, he's germaphobe and everything. And a lot of this comes about um, because his wife was murdered. And he's trying to figure out his, he's trying to solve, and he can't. And uh, it comes out that there is a Christmas present that was under the tree right before uh, she was murdered, and he has never opened it. Year after year after year, he gets it out every year and he puts it under the tree, but he won't open it because it's Trudy's last gift. And you finally get to the last season and he opens it, and it's a videotape of his wife explaining everything that's going on that leads to her murder and that kind of fits with what you're saying you know here's the gift here's the gift open the gift take the gift open the gift receive the gift 
oh, it's a nice gift. I'm just going to leave it right there. You know, and not actually receive the incredible power and the effect and the impact that that's going to have when, when that gift is opened. And ultimately, you know, it's God that's like, well, fine, here, here. I'm going to give you the faith to receive the gift. When the, there was a column that came out when the Soviet Union fell. And yeah. And uh, declared democracy in Russia. Yeah. That the Russian people were now in a position of a family that had always wanted to own a grand piano. And they were finally given one. And, and then they realized they had to learn how to play it. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's the same story. It's not just opening it. But, but even, even the learning to play it in terms of faith, even the learning to live this life, that's stuff that's empowered and invigorated by the, the Holy Spirit. You know, yeah, so yeah, um, and so sometimes people are like, no, there, there have to be steps afterwards, and there are. You know, but it might not be the specific gift that somebody's looking for or wanting. Like our charismatic friends, they will tell you, you know, that you know, there has to be a speaking in tongues. You know, otherwise, you're probably not a Christian. Um, well, no. How, how about this? Uh, you know, like your Jack Nicholson guy. You were a selfish jerk and you, who made yourself the center of the universe. And then all of a sudden, I'm a little bit of ashamed by, uh, by that. And I believe that God is actually the center of the universe, even though I still act like a selfish jerk. Is that a change? Yeah. And it might not be one that is really obvious from the outside, yeah. but it's really important for what's going on in here. And I think that that can be a lot like a seed that, that starts growing in a sidewalk, you know, and how that will start breaking it up, you know, as it grows, you know, and tears the concrete apart. And I think that, you know, that idea of fruit uh, and, and, and growth are hugely important when we think about how God makes us alive in Christ. So the promise that faith holds on to uh, in 30 through 33 uh, is really that the righteousness that we receive is received by faith and it's completely given to us by God. So if that's the case, if the Gentiles, looking around the room, probably all of us, right, um, if the Gentiles are saved by grace through faith and, and the Jews are being excluded because they refuse this idea of doing it by faith, but I've got to do it by works, um, what kind of attitude does Paul display toward Israel? Frustration. Okay, sometimes he does display some pretty strong frustration. What else? Yeah, I think there's a lot of compassion in, in the way that, that Paul responds. Anything else? This isn't guess what pastor's thinking. It's, you know, what do you see there? Patience. Yeah, I think so. Because you can be frustrated and patient at the same time, right? I think that there's a strong desire, a strong compassion, a strong sympathy for them, and he longs for them to be saved. Um, and how might that inform us as we deal with people who do not believe in Jesus? How should we respond to them? 
That's exactly what we had to experience with family members, the frustration and the patience and the compassion. Mm -hmm. it's, it's confusing. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. That's not the stance that the church has always taken, though, or that Christians have always taken. You know, so if you look at statistics of how society looks at us as Christians, uh, they often see us as closed-minded, parochial, um, judgmental, you know, unkind. You know, these, these are not reflections of our Savior at all. You know, they, they, what they are experiencing from us, and I don't mean this group in specific because you are all fantastic, um, but uh, what, what often they experience is almost like hatred and anger. Um, and, uh, you know, as you look at that, you know, that, that is not at all reflected in the way that we're taught to react to people and it's difficult because you know there are there are actions and behaviors that are sin and you know need to be confronted and and rejected and yet you're dealing with people who need to be loved who need to know mercy and who need to know forgiveness in their lives and i i i see in paul here a, a, a deep compassion for people who are lost and then how do you reach out to them you know, I, I think that this is important for us when we think about people who have walked away from the faith. You know, that, that's something that I, I often find as I talk with people. You know, they grew up in the church and then it just kind of became irrelevant to them, offensive to them, and they left. Well, they should know better. You know, so I'm going to look down my nose at them and tell them, you know, that they shouldn't have done that. And I'm going to, you know... No, that's not at all what God calls us to do. And so, you know, dealing with compassion and love and mercy with people, I think that's central to what's being talked about here. So I think that's going to be a good point for us to stop right there at the end of verse 1. We're going to, uh, to pick up with verse 2 next week when we get back together um, and to get at what it's being said here about them having zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Uh, we're gonna jump back into the Gospel of Mark, uh, verse 12, and take a look at that. And that's gonna help us, I think, as we continue our conversation. Any questions before I close us with prayer? I would also add one more time, you know, cause I'm thinking still about just, you know, a couple weeks ago, I was teaching the kids. I always finished my lesson plan with the kids. Do you know why? Because they just sit there and they're like, yeah. saying nothing. Okay, move along. This is much better than that. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that we can be here today. We thank you for the love of the Word and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue to grow uh, as your people so that we would show forth the, the type of compassion and love that we've experienced in Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.